Welcome back, everyone, to this edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from Birmingham, Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks, of course, from Gainesville, Florida. And today we're joined from just outside of Atlanta at his home. Brad Nessler of CBS Sports calls the SEC Game of the Week on CBS. And Brad, before you know it, you're going to be talking about Alabama and Florida getting ready for some football in the swamp. But hopefully everything's going well in July for you. It is. Guys, this is this is off season, and this is the time of year where everybody comes and says, are you ready for football season at me? She goes crazy because she can't stand that comment. She wants another month or so, but I'm surprised you two get along, you know? Um, I guess it works for you, the Florida-Alabama thing. Well, we used to work together. Uh, Kyle and I worked together calling Jacksonville Suns minor league baseball back in the day, so that's the uh, connection that we have. (laughs) Got it, got it. Sounds good. Well, Brad, let's let's start here. Just what was this year like for you? All culminating with that SEC championship, Alabama and Florida, and very different scene in Atlanta, just a different year. And I'm sure you're used to walking into buildings where you have sea of tailgaters who are screaming your name, Gary's name, and, and welcoming you to, to 90,000, 100,000 people. Just how different was this year for you and your crew? They're used to screaming my name and Gary, Kyle. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the key, right? No, you know, it was really weird because... Uh, you know, for the last years, we would go to a stadium and we'd arrive with our bus and uh, three hours before the game. And, and, you know, everybody's tailgating and everybody's having a great time. And, uh, yeah, they, we get off the bus and we either get yelled at or, you know, yelled uh, in, in a positive way. So that was kind of strange that we go to stadiums and uh, there was none of that atmosphere at all. And that really took away from a lot of the feel for us. I think, um, you know, our crew is really tight and. Uh, we do a lot of things socially together and it starts Thursday, you know, try going to practice and then together. And then Friday is meetings all day. And in this case, it was all zooms, you know, so we weren't meeting anybody in person, uh, players or coaches. And then, uh, you know, we usually spend time together on Friday afternoon and Friday night as well. And so the whole social part of it went out the window and it was really strange because we literally didn't see each other in person until they picked us up in separate vehicles the morning of the game. And, and they would have one driver and we would have to sit in the back seat, asks the whole thing, you know, and that was just our CBS protocol. And I think it was that way for, you know, just about everybody, be it Fox, ESPN, whatever. Um, but anyway, we would, I wouldn't see Gary and Jamie or our producer and director, Craig and, and Steve until game day and spent a lot of time on these type of things, obviously, but uh, it really took away a lot of the fun part of the job. I think, um, you know, to me, the, the, the game itself is the best part, uh, and the second best part is getting together with your teammates, and we didn't have that, so it was very strange. And then, you know, stadium itself, um, you know, limited capacity. If there was anybody, we did – I did a couple games where there weren't any fans. We had to go out to a Mountain West game one of the weeks when uh, one of our SEC games got canceled, so there was no fans at that game. And then I don't think there was any – the Arizona Bowl either that I did. Gary and Jamie didn't do that one, but um, I don't think there's any fans at that one either. So that's a really weird feeling because you have no atmosphere and, and have no feel for, you know, how much the game means to fans. And uh, so the, all that was taken away. So it was, it was about as strange a year as you could have. And I'm just glad it's not that way this year. And let's start with your early years, you know, growing up in, in Minnesota. And, and who were your early influences uh, in that area? Were there any broadcasters specifically in that area that you looked up to? And, and just how did you say that, you know, this is what I want to do for a living and, and you went after it? 
Yeah. You know, there was a guy that did uh, the Gophers for, I think, 48 years, Ray Christensen. Um, and so he had an influence just because, you know, every Saturday, if the Gophers weren't on TV, they normally weren't because we were usually getting Ohio State Michigan game in Minnesota. So the only way to follow the Gophers <clears throat> was on radio. And uh, he was an institution there at WCCO. And so he was probably one of the first, but as far as TV and that type of thing, it would have been Ray Scott, who, you know, a lot of you guys wouldn't maybe know, but it's a long time ago. <laughs> but Ray Scott, uh, in, back in the day at CBS, um, they used to follow like the best team. And in that case, it was the Packers, you know, from like 63 to 68 or whatever before the Vikings got good. So Scott was always doing the pack. And when the Packers played the Vikings twice a year, and that was my guy. And um, he sort of taught Pat Summerall how to do play by play. Pat did color first and did it with Ray. And so sitting next to him, I guess the, the influence of Ray Scott got to Pat Summerall too. So um, those two guys were the guys when I, when I grew up and there were, you know, countless other guys. I mean, Kurt Gowdy and Jack Buck and I mean, Keith Jackson, I got on and on and on, but First guys would probably be the people that I, I listened to in the Midwest. And then for the most part, it was those two or three. And, uh, and then, you know, as, as you go, I mean, you pick up things along the way. And, um, you know, by the time my twenties, I kind of had my own, I, I thought it was supposed to sound, you know, you always think, you know, everything and you find out you don't, but, um, you know, and I kind of, I started by play when I was 18, I'm sorry. Um, and my first, I think my first college baseball game, I was actually 17 and I did three innings of a minute baseball game. And uh, so when I got done with that, I thought, wow, I know, I know basically everything right now because I've done play. Now. But, uh, you know, then you kind of figure it out as you go and you develop your own style. Everybody has kind of an influence on you, I think, along the way. Kind of along those lines, when you are starting out in play-by-play, -play, when did you feel like you started to develop your own voice? Was it during your college days or some of those first jobs you had right out of college? You know, it's weird, Roger, because um, I, I listen back. I have friends that, I don't know, tape stuff that I did back when I actually lived in Minnesota. And, and I really sounded like I was from Minnesota. <laughs> I listen back now, and it's pretty funny. And then I moved to Georgia, and I was 24, I guess. Uh, when I moved down here and um, you know, I remember the first couple nights I was doing a nighttime talk show and I'm, I'm not good at that. I would have been, if I would have had two guys like you had somebody bounce things off of, but we didn't have it back in the day. So you were basically dealing with a crazy people that call in between 10 and midnight every night and you could tell who they were and they'd change their name and everything. And you wanted to say, you know, don't you guys have anything better to do? But um, when I first moved down here, uh, you know, I would, I, I tried to come about everything I could get about doing the SEC and whatever. And there was a guy to me when we'd be talking about uh, that school in uh, C-L-E-M-S-O-N that, you know, is a perennial national title contender. And finally this guy, he, he gave me a week grace period. And he said, Brian, Brian, will tell you something, son. He said, it's Clemson. It's not Clemson, it's Clemson. I see. I said, okay, I don't see a P in there. He said, well, you better. So from that point on, um, you know, I realized that they give you about two weeks to get acclimated to living in the South, and then you better figure it all out. And it, it took me a long time to figure a lot of things out. But um, 
that's when I look back and I started listening to like when I was 20 and then what I sounded like when I started doing the Falcons when I was 25 and there was pretty vast difference I think and if you meant finding your voice literally that's what I was talking about but um, I don't know you know sometimes I think I'm still finding finding new ways to do things even though I'm pretty stuck in my ways but um, you know I still look at people and go man that that was really good I should I should remember that or I should have done that a long time ago so it's ever evolving I guess. What can you tell us about those years, uh, your early time in Atlanta when you're doing some Georgia Tech games? Also, what led to you getting the Falcons opportunity and what was it like just kind of getting those first big reps on a big stage? Yeah, um, well, I worked with Al Serralo, who was a legend here uh, doing Tech, just like Larry Munson was a legend at Georgia. And, you know, so I knew them both at the same time when I was younger. And uh, when I started doing Georgia Tech on radio, I was with Al and Al had been forever and he was basically a guy during the week and then he was you know with Georgia Tech and they did knew everybody at Georgia Tech and it, it was hard just to you know get acclimated to um, uh, finding out who everybody was the coaches the players all that type of thing Georgia Tech wasn't very good the first couple of years we did the games and we would go to Alexander Memorial Coliseum and there'd be so few people there it was before Bobby Kremens came it was the year before he got there there'd be so few that Al and I didn't even use headsets. We had, he had these contraptions. It was like a stick mic and then uh, some kind of just like a hanger you'd pull out of the closet. And he had these things kind of folded together. It always looked like break into a car or something with a hanger thing hanging around our neck, but we didn't use head. We just had stick mice hanging around our neck. So they would kind of follow you when you turn from side to side. And so I did, uh, play-by-play one half and Al did play-by-play the other half and then we flipped roles and so uh, that's how we got, <laughs> that's how we got into that but that first year uh, the crowds were so bad and the people that were there there was maybe 200 people at the game and 150 of them were wearing bags over there as you know it was like the old ain'ts deal only it was Georgia Tech because uh, Dwayne Morrison was the coach and, and they were not good at all I think they won maybe one game Brooks Steppy was a decent player from here in Atlanta area but they had no time they were trying to play the likes of Ralph Sampson and stuff, and they just couldn't do it. You know, that didn't have the people. And so uh, anyway, we could hear each other and everybody could hear what we were saying because the crowds were that small. And so we didn't have to have headphones. And so that second year when Bobby Kremich and Mark Price and John Sally and Bruce Dalrymple and all those guys showed up and all of a sudden they were a threat to anybody they played. I was like, Al, we got to get like real big boy headsets here because I can't hear you anymore because I, I can't hear you over the crowd, you know. So that's kind of how I got into the Georgia Tech thing. And then um, about the only thing I didn't have uh, was good tape on football, just for a you know reel to give my bosses. And um, I did do people's and that type of thing, but my boss, you know, we need a tape of you doing a, a, an NFL game. And I said, they tape an NFL game when I'm not doing NFL games. And he said, well, just go out to the stadium and we'll find a place for you um, to um, sit and do the game into a tape recorder. You don't have to have an analyst or anything, just, uh, just do the tape recorder. So the first year I was here, I had just moved from Minnesota. I knew the Vikings inside and out, and they, the Falcons were going to play the Vikings on Monday Night Football. So I went out to old Fulton County Stadium, and they had uh, <laughs> kind of reserved me one of those cement bunkers that they put a camera in, but they didn't have a camera in it for that particular game. And so I did a half of that game 
uh, into a tape recorder. And I knew the Vikings, you know, very well because I'd been here a month or so. And so I didn't really need a spotter and got through the game and it started raining. And I was like, okay, this is, this is enough of this crap. So that one half, I saved that tape and I gave it to my boss. And after being here doing Georgia Tech, uh, Bob Neal was doing things at the time. And he was going to take the then TBS college football job. And, uh, and Bob and I actually sounded pretty similar. A lot of people always said that anyway. And so when he went to do that, my boss sent this tape into what the time was mutual broadcasting system on the rights to the Falcons. And they called my boss back and said, how old is this guy? And he said, 25. He said, well, he doesn't sound 25 and he sounds good. If you think he's the guy, hire him. And so uh, I remember the day he called me into the, his office and said, you're the new voice of the Atlanta Falcons. And I was like, awesome. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so that's how I got the Falcons gig. And then I did those games for five or six years. And just thinking of the other broadcasters around the league, and I think, you know, Kevin Harlan became a, uh, an NFL voice around that time as a young guy. You two were extremely young to have those types of jobs. Were there other broadcasters that were kind of giving you the stink eye at that point in time where it's say like, these young guys, who are these young guys? It was terrible. Kevin and I were like our own little niche, you know, because he's about three years younger than me. And so he got the Chiefs job. I thought I was young. I think the year after I got the Falcons, he got the Chiefs in 23 or something like that. And together, I'd go, hey, buddy, we got to stick together, man, because at that time, I thought guys that were 45 and 50 were really old, you know. And so there was a whole bunch of those guys that had those jobs. And they were like, who are these two punks? And, um, you know, eventually we kind of earned our stripes and, and they didn't feel that way anymore. I, I hope. I don't know. But, man, Kevin and I, this day, we still talk about that. And we remain really good friends, I think, because of that, because we started together. I had a picture of him over on my wall someplace when we're young. And I'm like, I look at it sometimes and go, man, no wonder those people didn't like us. We really were young, you know, long hair. And, you know, we didn't dress the same way as those guys. And, and so that was a little different, but uh, created a great friendship with us because of that. And what's been the key for you, you know, first getting to CBS and then a long run with ESPN and now back to CBS in, a, in an industry that has so much turnover and there, there's new people that step in all the time. What's the key to longevity at a network level? Because it just doesn't happen that often. And for you, you've had an incredible career at the highest level at the network level where there's been just so much turnover all the time. Yeah, I don't know, Kyle. I think your way up the ladder as far as you can get up. And then sometimes you think you're at the top of the ladder and then somebody, you know, wants to knock you off that second, whatever. Um, yeah, I was at ABC and ESPN four years and it was a great 24 years. Probably would have been there 25, but I don't think they wanted to give me a gold watch. I don't know. So um, CBS wanted me to come back home as they called it after being there for uh, the first years of my TV career or network TV career. And, um, you know, that seemed like time for a change for me and a really good change because the SEC, you know, Todd and I did a lot of really good games the eight years we were together, but it was usually the number two SEC game or maybe a number one game from a different conference. But everybody would always say, what game are you going to do? And I say, I don't know. I got to, we have to see what CBS picks first, you know, two years from now, I don't know what I'll be saying if, you know, I'm talking about what game I'm going to be doing or what the best or whatever the case might be. But um, 
I don't know. I think just keep on working and keep on plugging. And if you get with good people, uh, producer, director, analyst, and I had the best of all of that when I was at, uh, you know, first I was with Gary for eight years. And then I was with Bob Greasy and Lynn Swan for eight. Then I was with Bob and um, Paul McGuire for two more. And then I'd for eight. So, I mean, I was, I was all great crew and they probably made me look better than I, than I was. And so that keeps you kind of on top of the water a little bit. Brad, I always joke that I probably could have gone to an Ivy League school if I had paid more attention in high school and didn't have NCAA football from EA Sports to play on my Xbox over and over again. So I had to settle on Tennessee. But um, your voice, I mean, I could still hear, you know, he's going to take this one to the barn. All those calls that you had for those video games, you did the basketball game as well. Just what was that experience like uh, going into the studio and recording just so many voiceovers for those EA Sports video games that you did? Well, Roger, the first couple of years was horrible because I had to come up with, well, now I didn't have to come up with, I had to read line after line after line after line of copy. And it literally, it looked like the time I walked in there, it looked like a phone book and I'd get halfway through it and I'd be excited and they'd go, yeah, but there's three more phone books over here. And so we had to do, or I had to do every conceivable play from every conceivable yard line and every conceivable type of play, be it draw play, sweep, you know, draw, um, uh, you know, pass outside, pass inside, seam pass, deep ball, all of that kind of stuff. And you had to do it from every yard line and you had to do it stitching together every team. So you basically did every team in every stadium. And then you did every name you could get out of a phone book. Even if it happened to say Tebow, if it was public, it was a phone book um, name. And so a lot of the names look very familiar. Those bodies look very familiar, but they weren't really the guys, you know. So anyway, year after year after year doing that, and I guess I did it for, I think I did it for 12 years. I don't know. I, last one was 2014 or whatever before they shut it down. But uh, the last couple years, uh, the producers got lazy or the writers got lazy. And so they would, I would video and they would say, it's third down and seven, make something up. And Kirk and I would look at each other and go, wait a minute, make something up. You're not paying us to write this stuff, broadcast this stuff and voice all this stuff. So we laughed about that, but we did it for about three days. The last year we did it. And we thought we were in pretty nice to the producers because we could have said, Hey, forget this, man. We're, we're, we're not doing this. We've been doing this too long. Last year that they uh, did the game, we were kind of excited. We went to Nashville. Kirk had moved to Nashville by then. And they had us in this big room and they put us in this gigantic, uh, lack of a better term, an igloo. And it had cameras, I don't know, 20 cameras, maybe more than that, all simultaneously hooked up. So when the flash hit, the next one would go off talking. And so what they were doing is they were getting our, how, how our mouth would move compared to the words that we say. And we did that for like an entire day. And they took something like 5,000 pictures of each one of us. And about a month later, we found out they were shutting the game down. So Kirk and I were like, damn it, we were finally going to be in the game. Our faces were going to be in the game. And now they shut the game down. But um, it was a lot of work. You know, it was, it, uh, it was rewarding enough that I knew people enjoyed it. I still have people come up to me today, mostly dads now and, and, they will say to their son or daughter, you, you have to, I want you to meet Mr. Nestler, you know, and I say, Hey, how are you doing or whatever? And talk to him for a second. 
And then they'll look at me and go, dead. That's the dude on the video game. I mean, like, that's the dude on the video game. And so they have no idea I'm on TV and they don't watch the games on TV, but the video game still gets played a lot by a lot of people at a lot of different ages. I had one of our camera guys come up to me at the, at the bowl game this year or the SEC championship, maybe. And I think I've known the guy forever, but he came in, he had the whole thing, the cover, the, the, you know, the last one, I think it was Desmond Howard or, or no, it wasn't. Um, it was, it was a Michigan player. I think Bernard Robinson, Bernard Robinson. Thank you. And he came up and he goes, dude, I don't know when I'm going to see you again. I just, can you sign this for me? And I was like, you could have asked me any time over the last five years, but I never want to bug you, you know, and it's just like such a big deal. And so I signed it and he was like, he was nine years old, you know, this guy's like 35 or something. So um, I still get a kick out of it when people come up and, and talk to me about that. And um, earlier year, but wait, uh, I don't, played the I, I can guarantee I've never played the game so um I would only watch people play and I went to a uh, best spot time when it came out and the day it came out and they had they had like an 80 inch tv and they had couches around and there these kids playing a game and so I walked up there and I watched them and then I was getting ready to leave and I went uh and go there just for that but I was looking for something at best buy but anyway I, I was watching these kids play up and I go man that guy doing the play-by-play is really good isn't he and i turned around and all the kids turned around on the couch and they were like no way no way and i go i just said way and i turned around and walked out the store you know <laughs> and they were all they were all freaking out so that was kind of funny uh but yeah i knew that uh i knew as soon as ed o'bannon started making waves about name image image likeness that we all hear about now today uh, with the basketball game that Dick and I did for about 10 years. And I knew when, uh, when he had the lawsuit against the game and the NCAA and everything else, that days of both the football and basketball game were numbered. So we kind of saw the writing on the wall, but we, Kirk and I still would have loved that, that one last year. So we could have got our ugly mugs on, on the game. Well, that's a pretty good story. And again, yeah, spent hours and hours, high school, college, all throughout. I used to, you know, play, come out in July, I used to would have that playing on my TV, listening to SEC Media Days coverage. I mean, that was kind of my unofficial start to football season every year. Uh, but let's just- I had a guy come down. Yeah. I come down here the other day to work on my computer. And somewhere over there, I, like most all of the games, they framed them for me and sent them to me. Some of them are on the wall, some are on the floor. But anyway, uh, he knew me through my daughter and he kind of knows what I do, but he came into my office and he started looking at all the pictures and everything. And then the first thing he said was, don't tell me you were the dude on the, on the football and basketball game. I go, yeah. And this guy's not a big sports fan, but he's a gamer, you know? So sometimes, sometimes you're a fan by just being a gamer, I guess. No doubt about it. Uh, let's shift gears to talking about your uh, play-by-play process of preparation. And uh, we'll just take, you know, our different SEC football game week. What does your week of preparation look like uh, starting with your boards? And I understand you have some spotting boards there. We'd love to have you uh, hold those up to the camera and show us yeah. what's important to you to have in your chart each week. You know, um, first of all, basically, this is just part of it because I don't have my spotting boards, which is a whole other story. If, if anybody that's ever done play-by-play for football, uh, knows that spotter is worth his weight in gold. And my guy uh, that I've had for 32 years is going to do one more game with me. I think he's going to do Alabama and Florida. 
and he needs more time with his wife and to just chill without him. But anyway, he made my boards for me and they're set up with defense up on top and the offense, the closest to you. And you got every player at their positions. Um, he might have eight wide receivers on one side, eight on the other side, might have six tight ends, uh, as many as 10, 12 backs, uh, the offensive line, three deep quarterbacks, three deep. And then on the other side, depending on if it's a three, four or four, three, you know, the front, uh, four linemen, if it's a four, three, usually three are deep there. And then at the linebackers and then at the secondary. So I wish I could show you that. I don't have it with me because he has all that stuff, but my boards haven't changed since that. Uh, what did I tell you when I did the baseball when I was 17, I basically start off a manila folder, just like this legal size. And even my inserts haven't really changed in a long time. Basically, I don't even know well you can see this, but not very well. Anyway, this is Florida and Alabama for the SEC title game. And there's team notes on the top. There's notes all over in the columns. Uh, the offense and defensive rankings, the head coach and the coordinators, the head coach and the coordinators, and then offense and defensive rankings. And then you hit the quarterbacks, um, Kyle Trask, Matt Jones, and I usually go three quarterbacks deep. And then all the is position players. I hate using that term because I think linemen are just as skilled as anybody else. But in this case, pretty good ones. Uh, Kadarius, Tony, Trevon Grimes, Kyle Pitts, Devontae Smith, John Mechie, Slade Bolden, uh, Jaleel Billingsley, and Miller Forrestal. And then into the running backs, uh, um, Najee Harris, Brian Robinson, and Malik Davis, Damian Pierce, so on and so forth. And then all the defensive players that I think are going to make a fairly big contribution are down at the bottom. And then the very bottom is uh, the punter and the, and the kicker. But um, you kind of know that you don't need, um, you, you don't need 85 people on your board. You do on your spotter board, but on your board, that's got your notes that you're studying all week and the tidbits that you put in, you're basically going to use, one and a half quarterbacks a week. You're going to use about five receivers and about five tailbacks. The defense in, in Alabama and Georgia's case is really deep. Deeper than what I have here, but I've got, you know, extra notes on the side about them. And then basically, I didn't forgot to tell you this part. Um, I have pullouts. So basically it's just stapled together. And then all the stats that I don't have are just slipped inside. And the same thing for uh, basketball, which is a lot easier. Same kind of concept, though. Uh, and Georgia played, I guess I have probably 11 guys for Alabama. I only had nine guys for Georgia because I know that they not even nine were going to play. And then in this case, um, all their stats from the previous year on the left-hand column, their number, their current numbers in red, name, high school, all that stuff. And then pink and green means different things. Pink means last game. Green means they've already played Alabama once and what their numbers were there. And then I just basically go X for two, uh, a three for three. And then on free throws, I keep my own stats. You've got a guy that's awesome in basketball, but it's something I got used to doing radio. 
that I just kept a running score. And so I always knew what the biggest lead was when the game was tied and I couldn't get over that. And so, you know, I traveled a spotter around and I always say, George, I don't even know why I have you ahead of you, but just keep a running score, you know, the whole time. And then I have free throws. A dot is a, a free throw is one. And so I know if they're, you know, three for five or whatever from the free throw line. And I don't know, I just use the same kind of concepts in, in both cases. Uh, basketball is a lot easier than football, but that doesn't really show you what we have in the, because like I said, the spotter boards, and I wish I had them, but I don't have them, but uh, they're really important to me. And I'm starting with a new spotter this year, a little nervous. Um, and he's worked with some of the best. So we're ready to go. I'm, I'm not ready to lose my other guy though. After 32 years, that was, I, he was my college roommate. Um, he played hockey and I broadcast hockey. And so, uh, still my, one of my best friends. And I called him up when I got the Vikings job after the Falcons. I said, Hey, need your help. He said, what? I said, I want your spot for me. Said, I'm not a spot. And I go, well, we'll figure it out together. And so probably 500 or 600 games later and 32 years later, I only have him for one more game. And take me inside that booth you know what's the communication like between you and gary do you have any non-verbal signs you'll give to each other you know how much are you pounding that talk back button to, to talk to your producer your director what's what's that communication like just i'm sure a, a production like that it can be a zoo when you're calling the biggest game in college football one of the biggest sports what is it like up there and how do you maybe just kind of silence all the other things going on around you i'm sure there's a lot yep um, there is Kyle. And, you know, this past year, uh, was weird in another way because we were, we had to be six feet apart and we had to have plexiglass in between us. And so a lot of the things that we would do by just, you know, flicking somebody in the shoulder or the elbow to get attention, uh, we couldn't do. So you're knocking on the glass sometimes and we had to move our people around too. So, excuse me, my spotter was usually between Gary and I, and because most of the booths in the SEC aren't big enough that the pro booths are, but we don't get those, you know, very often. Um, so we had to have our stat guy on a second level behind me. And then we put my spotter to my left and right. And sometimes he wasn't even in the booth with us. So we had him set up with a camera on the boards and then a monitor of what he was pointing at. You asked me a loaded question. I'm giving you a loaded answer. I get, I get it. But Anyway, just to keep all of us so we could at least see each other, Clint, my spotter, in a different booth, um, and his camera was on a monitor. We used to have a stage manager, too, which handed us cards to do promos and, and uh, commercials. And so they did monitor for that, and that took somebody else's job away with. I hate that part. And then Gary and I being six feet apart, it was really weird because we'd usually just reach out, kind of tap each other on the elbow or touch each other on the shoulder, if we wanted, you know, so in this case, this year, we had to kind of, you know, each other. I mean, we have a very good feel when one guy's going to talk and the other one's not going to. So very seldom do we have to even do that. I usually have to get his attention when I got to get a promo in for uh, the neighborhood on Monday night on CBS at 8.30, 7.30 Central Time. I got to get that stuff in. We got to pay the bills. So uh, it's usually I'm usually trying to get his attention about a promo or about 60 minutes or something else. But uh, that was very strange because normally I would tap my stat guy and I would go, 
how you know how long was that play i so some of our hand signals of like how long was that play or punt and i go george like you know like how high or how long you know ever and so we couldn't do all that we'd have to turn around and look at each other and everything took so much longer it just felt like you were in quicksand all the time with everything you wanted to do and you know then if clint wasn't in the booth with me my spotter and he was pointing at something i already knew i'm like normally i just wave him off and go no 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 like i want the defense you know and then, you know, everybody always helps out on penalties. Everybody's, everybody's always throwing their arm up like this. Flag down, flag down, flag down. My God, I saw the flag, all right, you know. But, um, and then, you know, our talk back and everything, it's just as vital as always, maybe even more past year because we didn't get to see each other enough time or spend enough time, uh, you know, in the truck together and that type of thing. We just were never together. And so, um uh, you know, the talk back and the, and the cough button to me are amazing things because after 40 years, some of the things I've said on talk back would have definitely got me fired. When you said longevity, I would have been long gone if some of that stuff would have come through. So thank God for our audio guy, Jack, and our A2, Barb, who always keep those two buttons for me working in spectacular fashion, or I probably would have been on the news a long ago about something I said on the air. Yeah, we we've all had those moments into into talk back. You just you do that double takedown to make sure. Yep, yep, I'm pressing it. I'm pressing yeah. it. So, yeah. um, on camera opens. It's something that I'm I'm trying to get better at and trying to improve. And once you move from radio to TV, it's one of those things that you hate, you despise it, but you have to do it. And for you, uh, you know, those the opens you do, they're they're pretty involved, and there's a lot going on. How much do you rehearse those with Gary before you go on the air? And do you have written bullet points? Or are they mental bullet points? How do you attack and open and make sure that you know, you're both on the same wavelength and it goes pretty smoothly? You know, to be honest, Gary and I think that the on cameras are too in-depth most of the time. You know, producers want to produce, you know, and Craig Silver has been one of the best for a long time. And he was my producer the first time I was at CBS. So, I've never done a CBS game when I wasn't with Craig. So I feel very comfortable with what he comes up with and what we come up with the day before in our production meeting. But, uh, you know, you get some of the, to some of the point where you go, man, you know, I've done Alabama five times or I've done Florida four times. And I feel like we're repeating ourselves and all that kind of stuff. And obviously with the two quarterbacks, you know, those two guys this year was just nominally, you couldn't hard, help but talk about them, but we kept saying, God, we just seem like we did that. And so we got down to the end of the year and we just said, Hey, why don't you just let us talk about the game? Just, you, you don't have to show a bunch of highlights. If you want to show a couple guys warming up, that's cool. But we don't have to have enough pre-taped highlights and all that kind of stuff. It just gets so convoluted because I don't think people care that much, you know? People turn on and go, you know, wow, Joe and, and you know, uh, whoever is doing a game. Um, and or they go, Gary and Brad are doing the game or, or you know, Al and Chris are doing the game, whatever. Um and I don't think they care. And I think it kind of goes in some people's ears and out the other because they just want the game to start. And so, um, you know, we said, why don't you let us do like, uh, you know, Troy and J Joe do. And that we, they're like, what's that? And they go, they never show highlights. They just talk about the game for like two minutes and then they do the game. And so we did a couple of those last year and, and it was really fun because it was linking. And obviously the rehearsal part, we try to only rehearse it once. We look at it once, try to and about probably 45 minutes before the game we rehearse it once and then if it doesn't go well Craig says you got it again and Gary and I go no because we always think we're going to leave one out there 
you're going to just drill one and go, oh, yeah, that was awesome. And then you never get it back, you know. And so um, and, and sometimes you get more nervous the more you rehearse it. Like not nervous, but you do it once and it doesn't work out right. You do it a second time. It's even worse. You get to that third time. You start questioning yourself. I don't care how many times you've done it. You know, you kind of go, I don't think we're going to get this thing. And then sometimes Gary and I throw a curveball in and he'll go, I'm going to say something or I say, I'm going to throw it to you in a certain way and rehearse it. And then he's like, I'm ready for, you You know, we kind of like the challenge of doing that because it kind of takes it. And Craig's like, where the hell did that come from? You know, but he's going, that worked perfect. So it's just Gary and I kind of having fun with each other. So we do that actually pretty often, almost once, almost once a week, we kind of go, okay. And especially, you know, the on cameras in the second quarter, third quarter or halftime and the end of three, those things are never rehearsed. Like they'll say, what are you going to talk about? We go, I don't know. And that, you know, with, with game guys, we have a lot of fun with uh, Adam and Rick and BJ and, you know, that show's not three hours long, like game day and everything. And, and they have a lot of fun with it. And so they started when I came over four years ago or something, they used to use Gary, but they didn't use Vernon. And so I came over and they said, well, why don't we get another two and just try it? Maybe it won't work. And it was like a smack, you know, we, we cracked them up and we were talking about our own stuff and the, and the guys were loving it. The studio producers were loving it. And so we do that pretty often now too. And uh, they never tell us what they're going to say. And so, you know, uh, Zucker will send way and I go okay and then we just roll with it so we don't rehearse those things at all but yeah we rehearse our on cameras you know at least once but never more than twice and then when you're getting ready for a game and you do have the opportunity to visit with head coaches like uh, say before an Alabama Florida game on the Friday you'll get to visit with Nick Saban you'll get to visit with Dan Mullen what's most important what are you asking during those meetings to those head coaches that can help your call um you know with Nick it's very we know exactly what time it's going to be. We know exactly where he's going to sit. We know just who's going to give him a half a cup of coffee and how strong it is. It's very regimented. It's very different with somebody like Dan, who's a little more, uh, you know, he might come in from jogging and he's sweating all over the chair. You know, Nick comes in and he's got like a crimson a sport coat that costs about more than I make in a year on that, you know, Miss Terry got him or whatever. So very different guys and all of them are different. Um, you know, like Kiffin's fun, Leach's, Nick's very, um, I mean, he tells us as much as anybody. Everybody says, everybody assumes that Nick's this hard ass that doesn't tell you anything. It, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Honestly, I get as much out of him as anybody. And then, you know, we can get him into his factory. If you start talking about, you know, his granddaughter or something or something else's game, whatever, when we're actually done talking football, then he's a lot of fun to be around. And I've been on his, you know, radio show over there on Thursday night several times. And that's fun too, to see him interact with the crowd. But um, all those guys are different. And, and sometimes you get a lot out of some of them. Um, you know, Mullen's not afraid to talk at all. Um, you know, he's a little like Spurrier in that, you know, Dan thinks pretty highly of himself and his, his talent as a coach. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And, and he should. I mean, I get it. I think pretty highly of myself and what I do, too. So, you know, some of those guys are a lot more reserved and, and some are kind of cocky and, and some are kind of don't happen. And, and you go, why did we waste that hour? Some 
same way. And sometimes they reflect their coaches, you know, you sometimes get some funny stuff out of the players that you can use or something about their families, um, that type of thing. I don't, I don't get too involved with the kids about football stuff. I'd like to hear, you know, their brothers and sisters, what do they like to do? Where'd you get the stupid watch? You know, who does your hair whatever, you know, I just ask them crazy questions. Sometimes the rest of their crew looks at me like, where were you going with that? And then if I throw it in the broadcast and it happened to fit, they're like, that's why you asked them that stupid question, you know? So uh, I love talking to the players and we didn't get enough chance. We did it this year, but it wasn't the same on zoom as when they're sitting there and you can see how they're dressed and everything. It was, it was different. Also, you have one of the more challenging assignments in broadcasting, and that's preparing to call the first round of the NCAA basketball tournament. You have four games in one day. That means eight teams. Just what's your prep like getting ready for that gauntlet of a stretch, calling those four games in one day? Well, that was really different too, Roger, this year because we couldn't go to the practices. So we got a lot of our stuff by the day before, literally going to every practice. And, you know, at least players would probably come over maybe three Sometimes the coach would say yeah, certain coaches have different things like Calvin Sampson, his whole team will come over and shake hands on the way to the locker room. Even if they don't know who the hell you are, uh, you know, it's just certain coaches have a way of doing stuff with their kids. that makes you just feel better, you know, and some of them might know who you are, stop and talk to you for a while. So that was weird. And then we weren't on the court. We were probably 40 feet away from the floor and up about uh, the level of, 15 types, 15 seats or so. So uh, it was difficult from that standpoint. I actually have my eyes fixed. <laughs> Can you believe this or not? <laughs> when I first had Lasix, they fixed one eye so I could see a football field from a booth. And then when I got the touch up, he said, how do you want to see the second one? I said, from the floor on a basketball floor. So I actually, my sight is set up perfectly for those two things. But from that 35 not so hot. And so the first round of the tournament, when you have teams, you don't know, it was like, wow, this is, this is tougher than being on the floor when you've watched them practice the day before and you got all their idiosyncrasies or maybe, you know, guys are similar builds or whatever, but you can see one guy's got an arm sleeve on one guy's got a knee pad on. You kind of get all that into your notes and go, you know, those two guys are similar in build and everything. I got to figure out a way they both got beards, whatever. So that was kind of weird. And I had to do one game, uh, Clark and I did one game in a studio in New Jersey this year. It was like going to the Sopranos. I know we were out in this garage someplace in New Jersey and had to do Florida, Kentucky off a monitor, a gigantic monitor as it was, but clear, no. We never got our bearings till second half. I was like, man, this is not like being at the game. I hated every minute of it. And I, I feel for the guys at ESPN, especially that I know did a lot of their games, if not all of their games from home. I don't know how they did it, but uh, excuse me again. I don't know how they did it, but I give them a lot of credit that they could do it because I could not work that way, not on a consistent basis. It's just, it's too tough. It's too tough. Um, you know, and those guys did football and basketball that way and baseball, and a lot of them are still doing it. And I've talked to some of them that said they don't think they're ever going to go back to being on the road as much as they were. And I said, God bless you guys, man, because when I can't go to the game on a consistent basis, I might just ride into the sunset because it's not it's not nearly not nearly the same. I'm a Jersey guy, so I love that Sopranos reference. <laughs> a basement in Jersey calling an SEC Florida Kentucky game. That's you 2021 for you. you. 
we went in, we take this, the driver takes me from Newark airport and we're going through all these places and we got up and we're going up this hill and I look out and I go, man, there's like a junkyard or something right there. And then there's another side street. And then we went in and it was all these big like warehouse buildings. And all I could see was it would be a place where Tony would take somebody to snuff them out or something. And I ended up going in one of those places and we walked in and where they had the producer and director and the rest of what would be in a truck, they had these nice compartments and they were all in separate rooms. Well, if we're in something like that, that's going to be cool. They take us back there and there's a truck sitting right there. And there's another truck right here and I could smell diesel. And they put Clark and I up on this table and they threw two monitors in front of us and said, knock yourself out. And I said, this is ridiculous, man. This is crazy. But anyway, it was out in Jersey. Must have been Secaucus. It's where they have MOB yeah, and it was, NBA I think studios. It was yeah, yeah, everything is out there. But uh, how about another event that you get to call and you could barely see this year was Army Navy because they had the the intense fog and, but that's for you the the pageantry of that and and you think about all the SEC rivalries, but that game is is special and I, I think I read that you kind of had to learn as you you took over for, for Vern just how special that game was. So having been able to do it a couple times now, just how special is, is that event? It's one of my favorite things. I didn't think, I didn't think it would be. I, mean, I was watching it as a kid. Uh, my dad and I always watched that game and I thought, man, this is neat. But you know, then as I got into doing NFL or other college games, I would still try to watch it, but I was like, well, this is only going to take two hours and 10 minutes because they run the same offense and it's the fullback and then it's the full and then it's the tailback. And then it's the quarterback, you know, and I was like, well, they never pass the ball. And so I thought, okay, but I would always watch the beginning and I go, well, the beginning is the coolest part. And then the ending is the coolest part. Then when I started doing the game, the first year we did it, uh, it was in Philly and it snowed about six inches and army came out in white and they had gold numbers and the word army and gold on their back. Not a lot of help. And I don't remember uh, what Navy wore, but they had some cool unis too. But anyway, it was snowing so hard, it was really hard to see anything on the field. And that was my that was my spotter's greatest eye. I said, dude, game was over. I said, dude, without you, I could not have even come close to doing this game. Not to mention, I think we crushed it. And we won an Emmy for that, actually. And so that was really neat. And I have a hard time. Uh, our, our people that put the teases together at the beginning, they spent a lot of time on that. And, and uh, you know, they have family members in there and stuff. And and, you know, my wife can't watch the open without crying. And so I said, well, don't tell me that I have a hard enough time. So they only show me the tease to the Army Navy game one time just to get a feel for it. This year, I had to do a lot of it. So the timing was there and the president was there. And so a lot of it was me on top of the other stuff that they mixed together. So I didn't really have the opportunity to get too emotional about it. But if you just uh, set me up to do Army Navy and you put the tease on that our people put together, I'm like a crying mess by the time we get to be on camera. And I just go, how am I going to do this? But then when the game gets going, it's one of my favorite things. And I don't think it's just fullback, fullback, tailback, quarterback anymore, even though a lot of times it is, but specialness of it before the game and to watch, you know, them come out, the cadets and, and everybody come out in formation and all of that stuff that is on CBS Sportsnet that you can actually see but you don't get to see if you just watch the game, you see snippets of it. So, you know, we're there for three hours and, and I'm just trying to keep, keep it all inside or let it go or whatever, and then do the game. And two and a half hours later, you're done. And 
uh, somebody's singing first and somebody's singing second. I just, it's awesome. I mean, that, that's one thing that uh, even if we don't do SEC games down the road, hopefully I'll be doing Army Navy for a while. And talking about emotional, you know, Vern's emotional goodbye was was after his uh, final Army Navy game. Just to, what what kind of role has he played in the transition? You know, you've done a lot of big games, so you, you're not you're used to that. But stepping into this specific role with this specific crew, SEC on CBS, the number one property in all of college football, how did Vern help you make that transition to to that spot? First of all, Vern Vern and I back and, and he probably helped me. Uh, get my first gig at CBS. Uh, he was in his last year doing the Cowboys on radio. I think the first year I was Hawkins. And so he was on CBS into TV full time. And uh, he just kind of under his wing. He was one of those guys that didn't mind the fact that I was young, was talented, uh, like we were talking about before. So Vern was kind of always in my corner and he would tell Chuck Milton, uh, Steve Milton is our director. Chuck Milton, who was kind of the head of the things together back today, he's like, "You got to get a tape of this kid down in Atlanta. You just got to get a tape of this kid." And Chuck Milton says, "Jesus, have him send me something, man. God, you're always bugging me about this kid." And Vern was always doing the Peach Bowl on TV. Was doing the Peach Bowl on radio, and he would introduce the luncheon. So Vern was always my right hand guy, you know, and. He's married to a Nancy. I'm married to a Nancy. Uh, he did radio for a long time. I did radio for a long time. So we were always really good friends. And then in 92 at the Winter Olympics, uh, he was doing, this is a thing that Vern has told this story as many times as I have. It shows our friendship, I guess. Um, he was doing uh, figure skating with Katarina Vitt and um, uh, Scott Hamilton. And I was doing speed skating with Eric Hyden. And so we were kind of the, we were kind of the bad boys of the, lot we were in ville as they were but they were in a five-star beautiful hotel big fireplaces nice bar we were in a place we call it two-star hotel because they had sheets on the bed you know so we were just kind of out in the slosh and speed skating got done one a day or two for figure skating did and they had one australia speed skater there and so australia had a big truck there uh just to follow this one guy who didn't meddle or anything but they brought a whole bunch of Australian beer with them. And so the last day we got done working, we went over with our friends from Australia and we, we kind of drank too much beer. And so I said to our crew, I said, let's go downtown and see Vern. And they go, no, it's not a good idea. I said, yeah, it's a good idea. So we go down, we're all mud. We got our purple CBS stuff on, you know, and everything in our muddy boots. We walk in this five-star hotel. Here's Vern with Scott Hamilton, a couple other people I didn't know. And they're all drinking red wine and they're wearing, you know, $600 sweaters and everything in front of the fireplace. And Vern sees us coming and he just goes like this. Oh, my God. And so needless to say, we only lasted about 10 minutes before they kicked us out of that hotel. But uh, ever since before that and ever since Vern was always in my corner, uh, when he knew that I was going to be the guy to take over, it was very helpful, uh, very gracious you know, he told everybody in the world that he could tell they got the right guy to take my spot. And so when you got a guy like that in your corner, man, awesome. It really is. And Vern had a unique style. And for you, uh, what can you tell us about the style you have? You mentioned Ray Scott was an influencer. Are you more of that school of thought of having star, dowler, touchdown? Yeah. Or do you like yeah. to pass it up a little bit more? Uh, kind of where do you fall on that spectrum? Of the I world? wish I, I – Roger, I wish I was more just like – because sometimes I, I hear some of our stuff back and it's very minimalistic and it sounds really good. And sometimes I hear me yakking and I go, you man, 
You know, I don't like guys that just talk to hear themselves talk. So uh, I'm definitely the minimal type approach. I probably sometimes talk too much, um, but I would, I'd rather say less and have it sound bigger and mean more than just keep rattling my gums and who cares, you know? So I don't think anybody cares about my opinion about anything. A lot of play-by-play guys have this feeling that their opinion means something. I think the analysts mean something. I think play-by-play guys there to kind of paint a picture for you and, and get out of the way and let the game game. I don't want to get in the way of the game. And sometimes we all do, I guess. And then what ways, uh, you mentioned you know, helping Gary you know, give his opinions. What ways does Jamie Erdahl really help the broadcaster help you at all during games? Maybe if it's not even things set on air, but different things she can gather from the sidelines that help you. Yeah, that's, but that's the problem. I wish she could always be on camera when she's telling us stuff because she's our eyes and ears down there that we can't, uh, we can't just cover as much ground. And a lot of this stuff that we say, we try to give her credit and say, Jamie just told us this. But I know that goes over people's heads. But when they, when she does get on camera and she says something, you know that she got it. It's not something we told her. And a lot of the stuff that we get out there is from her, and she doesn't get enough credit for it. Um, she's awesome. You know, we had Allie before her. They're pretty similar. Um, their personalities and stuff, they're just, you know, just like having two daughters with Gary and I all the time because we adore them and they're awesome at what they do. And uh, keeps getting better. So she's invaluable. She's going to have a baby on the road this year with us. So we got, I mean, not on the, she's not going to have the baby. She had the baby already, but she had Brooks uh, about two years ago. She just had Avery. So she's got two little girls. And so a lot of times she goes, guys, I got to go take care of mom business. And, and we go, go knock yourself out. And then sometimes Gary and I are, we do everything but change diapers. We don't mind having on the bus. It's all fun because we love them. But when you get to that part, you can have her or Jamie, you can have the kid back or Sam, your dad, go ahead, you take her. So anyway, we have the kids around a little bit. Pretty fun. Final one from me, just, you know, what, what would you say to young broadcasters out there, college broadcasters that, you know, are leaving school at a tough time to try and find a job, but uh, just to to fight through and, and have that patience it, for you and your career, I'm sure you had to go through trials and tribulations to get where you are. So what's your main advice to some of the young guys and gals right now trying to do this? Probably that you can't start at the top. <laughs> There's so many people that, you know, you guys understand this, I get it, but there's a lot of people that just go, how did you get where you are? And they want to know where, how I got right there. They don't ask what you guys just asked me over the last hour. You know, I did, I was working at a radio station and I was doing Friday night lights, if you want to call it that, Minnesota at a station for 50 bucks a game, you know? So you got to start doing games somewhere and it's not going to be at, you know, the number one spot at ESPN or, or ABC or CBS or Fox. Um, too many people are too anxious. I would say do everything you can. Uh, if you, if you want to do play by play, do as many things as you can. There's stuff I did that I had no idea what I was doing. I mentioned speed skating. I had no idea what I was doing. I studied for a month just to figure out how to do that. But when I was in college, I had golden gloves, boxing. I did wrestling on radio one time. You talk about not knowing anything about wrestling. Um, you know, and I did hockey, I did baseball, basketball, football. Um, there's a lot of weird things I've done that are even weirder than that. And I can't even think of some of them right now. 
but you got to take a shot. Don't be afraid to take a shot at something, even if you think you're not going to be great at it. Now, after you get established, certain thing that you really want to do, be it football, basketball, in my case, there's things I've turned down. I turned down NASCAR and I turned down golf at two different spots because I said I'd be too exposed. My brother could do NASCAR. My best friend do golf, but I'm not good enough at those things. So you know, those are two things I didn't want to do and chose not to try. But I would say when you're young, try everything and do the best you can and, and see what you're good at and the good will come to the top. All right, and Brad, we'll get you out the door on this. When are you going to have Ric Flair join you and Gary in the booth for a CBS game? <laughs> Woo! I was just with him too long ago. <laughs> he's he's a different cat. He was supposed to come to my birthday party, and he skipped it, so I'm, I'm a little ticked at him right now. But anyway, uh, we got to get him up there. He's been to Georgia games, and now this year he told me he's going to be a Florida fan. And I said, wait a minute. I said, you're the biggest front runner I've ever seen. <laughs> and he goes, well, he goes, well, Kirby – isn't going to let me on the sidelines anymore. Dan Mullen's giving me sign passes. So who do you think I'm going to back? And I go, I got it, bro. I got it. So maybe this year, maybe at a Florida, maybe a Georgia Florida game will get him in the booth. That'd be good. That'd be good. Look or Georgia for Alabama, <laughs> Alabama Georgia, right out of the blocks. That'd be a good one. It certainly would. Down there, he's down there. We'll. That's awesome. Well, we've really enjoyed this past hour, Brad. Just thank you so much for all the insights you've given us into your career and your uh, prep and philosophy into play-by-play. You do a marvelous job for CBS and can't wait for you to call Alabama against Florida coming up September to get this season going. But thank you again. We really enjoyed it. I appreciate it, guys. And I want to appreciate Van Brocklin, my cat over here, my 20-pound cat. Did not jump up on the table and it's an entire time. My boy. Thanks, buddy. He would have made a mess, but enjoyed him. He would have been like right here. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. Thanks, Brad. Hey, Brad. Thanks for watching Broadcaster Hour.